You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Andrew and I are here in our studio today in person. Which and is unbelievable, right? And we're joined by our guest, Carmen Pond. Welcome, Carmen, and thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I'm also it's, excited to be here in person. It's so wonderful to be doing this in person. It is. And Elizabeth and Pulver's with us. Thank you, Elizabeth, for pulling this all together. Our amazing podcast producer. So Carmen is the author of the Politico Global Pulse and a health reporter at Politico. And we're approaching the first anniversary of Politico Global Pulse. Congratulations on that. Last October, it launched, and it was a very important development. And before we talk about Pulse and its origins and where it fits and the like, Carmen, I'd like to ask you to tell us a bit about your own background and career. You're a Romanian native. You covered EU health policy for Politico for five years. You lived in Brussels for 12. You have broad experience as a journalist, but really great expertise in health. You land here in the middle of a pandemic to launch a new media entity. So what's your experience been? Tell us a bit about your background, how you got into health and you're from Romania to Brussels to Washington. But then tell us a little bit about what your what your experience has been here in the United States in this crazy period. Sure. I studied journalism in Romania and I went to Brussels after I graduated trying to do a master's in European studies because my country had just joined the EU at the time and I had I knew I knew nothing about what the European Union was and what it was supposed to do for for Romania. So I went back. I went to Brussels to study. And then this was around the time of the financial crisis, 2008. And I realized at the end of my master's in Brussels that there was not so much to go to in terms of career back home because newspapers were closing, Mm -hmm. people were getting laid off. So I decided to stay in Brussels for a little bit longer. And then there I was 12 years later. And I joined Politico Europe when they soon after they launched in 2015, and I've I covered European Union health for them um, due to my experience in in covering health and other policies in Brussels. And then for family reason, because my my husband had to relocate here with his job, we moved here. June last year. It was actually delayed because of the pandemic. I was supposed to fly in in April, but then everything shut down. There were no more flights. And I was in the middle of selling our belongings, our apartment and car in Brussels. So for a while, I was actually considering that I might have to stay with friends until I can get out of Belgium and and come here. Fortunately, that didn't happen. So we made it through. You know, when you go to a new place, what you want to do is make friends, meet people. (laughs) And that's the one thing that I couldn't do here. So it's been it's been tough from that point of view. I still feel like I just landed here yesterday because I don't know so many people. I don't know so many places. Because of the pandemic. Yes. Yeah. And I don't go to an office. You know, right. now you don't have that even like into the end in this new world where you meet your colleagues and like that you meet other people. I, it just hasn't happened. I mean, the hardest thing, I think, you know, with the pandemic from a work standpoint is onboarding new people. Right. And getting into the culture of if you're starting in a new job and a new office. And that's, I think, the biggest challenge. It is. And I I started I knew some of the people at Politico here. I didn't know many of them. So I started 
remotely. And I always had this thing that maybe a few more months, a few more months. Uh, and here we are almost like a year and a half later and we're still working from home. We have now started to gather in parks and do picnics as a team. So that's that's nicer. But you're still not going into the office. I'm still not going into the office. Our return to the office, which was supposed to be hybrid anyways, yeah. was postponed because of Delta. We were supposed to go back after Labor Day. Right. And for our listeners who don't know, Politico has, you know, a, a big chunk of a building with grand views of D.C. and, you know, and a big newsroom where people really it's a very collaborative place. So you also were, were telling me that you were able to go back to Romania this summer and you were able to go visit villages and talk to people, relatives, friends, folks that you knew. from. So that's an extraordinary thing, right, in terms of being able to go to a country that really is struggling with this pandemic big yes. time. What did you see when you were there? So I hadn't been able in two years um, because of the pandemic. And I went to visit family that I have in the countryside in the Southwest. They live in, in a village about of about 1,600 people. And many of these people I knew from when I was growing up there. And, you know, Romania had vaccines from the very beginning. They had vaccines at the same time as Germany and France and other big European countries. So I expected that, you know, I would say a majority, maybe a small majority would be vaccinated. And I was shocked to find out that at the time, this was, I would say, like late June, early July, only 10% of the people were vaccinated. And I wonder, is it because you have to go somewhere outside the village to get vaccinated? No, there was actually a caravan that was coming with Pfizer vaccine into the village if you wanted to get vaccinated. And people just didn't want it. I talked to one of my neighbors and I wrote a bit about it in Global Pulse. And he was, he didn't believe that coronavirus existed. He thought that the people in the countryside who had died of COVID, died of other conditions that they had. And that, you know, this is all just a conspiracy and he'd rather die what he of what he called his own natural death than dying from a vaccine. Some of the misinformation was coming from his son who lived in Italy, who was saying like, do not take the vaccine. And I told him, I took the vaccine. I don't have any chip. I'm still the same person that you remember. Yeah. And still I couldn't convince them. And it was really frustrating because I didn't know what to say to convince him that that vaccine is safe, even though my own personal example, I had taken it. I was there. I had convinced most of my family members to take it. My uncle and aunt, they both took it. And they were both fine. They're his neighbors. Still, that didn't work for him. So we're looking, I mean, Bulgaria and Romania are very standouts, but they're not alone. Eastern Europe has high resistance and high refusals. Are we looking at, a, in terms of long-term trend lines, for the next several years, you see these countries as basically in that 30 to 40% coverage, which is going to be very unsatisfying, right? Unfortunately, I think so. I remember Romania having one of the biggest measles outbreak a few years ago, which was also due to vaccine hesitancy, but also at the time due to the fact that in some cases, and especially in the rural population, it was harder to go get vaccinated because they weren't bringing the vaccines yeah. closer, which is not what is happening here. Not the case here. now, yeah. You know, I think people in the region have been so used to be lied to for all these years during communism and then also after that they just don't know anymore what to believe so and what not to deep, believe. So it's just deep, deep distrust. Yes. And the government's not making any headway in trying to erode that? They're not. At, at times I feel they're not even trying. And I'm speaking for Romania because I haven't studied the other countries so closely, but... Um, you know, in, 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 my, in my countryside, I spoke to the mayor who's part of the governing party, and he himself did not trust the vaccines. He himself had not gotten vaccinated, which was shocking for me because I expected that at least he would try to make an attempt to convince people. 
And he wasn't. He he thought he was like, look, they were developed so fast. I don't know what to believe anymore. And I feel like I don't get the information to tell people with confidence that they could take it. So the experience that you're seeing there kind of parallels what we see here. There's a lot of people who are still vaccine hesitant, even though there's overwhelming proof out there in the literature. People are you know safe from it. But yet you still see, I think since June, we've had 100,000 people die in the United States when vaccines have been you know, within five miles of every American. So is it the same kind of thing? Is there is there a mixture of media coverage and conspiracy theorists and same stuff? Yes, absolutely. I would say it's even worse there because here you do have over 50% of the population vaccinated on average. Yeah. In Romania, it's stuck around three, 30%. So that's still, that's still, you know, not a majority. That's what I meant about, you know, when you look at what's the prospects in very low income countries like in Africa and South Asia where the, under 4% cross Africa. What's it gonna look like in the next one, two years? And one proposition would be, well, you're, they're gonna get to 30 or 40% but have a difficult time because of delivery mechanisms and hesitancy and the like. And then when you look at Eastern Europe, which has a special set of factors at play, I think we're likely to see a similar thing. Yes. Is it political in Romania like it is here? I mean, it's become here. There's now sort of a, a Republican way to protect yourself against COVID and a Democratic way to protect yourself against COVID. And, you know, they don't kind of jibe just like the rest of our polarized politics. Are you seeing some of that in Romania as well? There is some of that. We, we have a far right party there that is against vaccines. And they also took people out against imposing vaccine mandates or vaccine requirements to be able to access venues and things like that. The thing is, until recently, you didn't. There's no vaccine mandate. There's no obligation to get vaccinated, like it started to be here in some cases. And because right now hospitals are again overwhelmed in Romania, they have started imposing vaccination requirements to go to to a bar or to a club. And this party has taken people out against that. I would say it's not as almost like half half as you could see in some parts of the U.S. It's still on the fringes, but. Conspiracy theories, you know, remain, I feel just speaking from experience and, and personally, they, they love conspiracy theories. There's always a conspiracy theory about anything. So I think that has been the case. That has been the case here. You know, like I remember I was still in Romania when 9-11 happened and everyone thought that it was an inside job. It was just the, you know, the mainstream thought at the time. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's not, in a way, it's not surprising that this is happening now with vaccines, but it's just, you know, it's deadly, unfortunately. So let's talk about global pulse. Now, Politico, as we all know, Politico pioneered a new form of domestically focused journalism. And everybody now imitates it to some degree. And, and so now you've come in and started Global Pulse. What was the motive? What did they think was the gap they were going to... Tell us a bit about the genesis and the, the aims of all of this. So obviously right now, I would say for the first time in a long time, global health is not just something where there's some diseases in, you know, lower and middle income yeah. countries and that rich countries are helping to fight against. We're all in this together. And I know it's a cliche, but we really are. And we could see many of the things, for example, that are sometimes they're playing out in other countries before they play out here in the U.S. We've seen that with Delta variant in India. We didn't know so much about it at the time, but now we do. So there were, you know, there were thoughts about starting something on global health before that. Um, and we felt that the story before the pandemic was 
the effects of climate change on health on all the world's population. But just the pandemic obviously was the was the moment to to pull the trigger and to start this. And also because when we started Global Pulse, the U.S. had decided that they will get out of the World Health Organization. Right. They weren't playing the sort of like leadership role that you were used the U.S. playing in this kind of global outbreaks. So it was interesting to see. I remember the first Global Pulse was headlined A World Without America because it was sort of like interesting to see if anyone was filling this gap yeah. and how that looked like. What do you think? Is anyone filling the gap? Germany is trying. I, I'm not sure. At times it feels like there's a lot of rhetoric, but a, a bit less action on it. They have been upping their financing and they've been much more involved. We've seen recently they opened in Berlin a pandemic center. But it's still, you know, the, the gap is still there. Even now with the current administration, it hasn't been fully filled. And I think that lack of trust that we're talking about, I think it, it remains. Because, you know, lower middle income countries, they saw rich countries turning inwards in some cases for good reason because they were fighting this this huge outbreak at home and just being left alone with like no vaccine, no treatments. And now it's hard to trust again that things could work the way they used to work before the pandemic. People don't depend on the United States to swoop in and, and save the day. Absolutely, exactly. And actually some people are saying that's a good thing that, you know, for example, African countries should get together and should find ways to better fund their own healthcare system without relying so much on external support. So you're at the end of your first year. You're mm -hmm. at the conclusion of first year. So what was the first year like for Global Pulse? I think it was a good year. It was also an experimental year where we tried to find our place, yeah. see what people want to read, see what's interesting. We always, since we are, you know, headquartered here in, in the D.C. area, we always um, try to also link it back to what's happening here. Yeah. How is what's happening here affecting things around the world? And in many cases, it is. So we're still learning. We're still, we're still learning to see what people like to read and also what moves people. Because at the same time, global health can feel, not right now in this pandemic, but can feel this like very far off thing that doesn't happen to you, and at times we also try to bring human stories of yeah. like how different health issues are affecting people. And I think this pandemic has just shown that global health is a global thing. It's not just a disease that just some countries should- poverty and- Exactly, and you know, not all one country should worry about it, especially if it's an infectious disease. It can, you know, it can find its way in other parts of the world. Yeah, well, I have to tell you, I think your arrival in the marketplace here in Washington has been very refreshing. You Glad guys have put forward a creative, fun, really rich and interesting new tool. So you should be congratulated. I mean, it you made a big splash, I think. And among our colleagues, people we interact with, they they track this and consume it uh, eagerly. And Thank I you think so it's, much. I think your one's been pretty successful. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say, you know, I study media, as you know, and from that standpoint, you found your voice quickly. And I think you found your audience quickly as well. And, you know, you, anytime you find a voice in an audience, you're able to interact and the product's just going to get better and better and better. And the, the reporting is going to get more informative. I think you're going to have more sor sourcing. What's that been like building that team? It's been really hard <laughs> because, you know, you, you tend to, to meet people at events and for coffee. Now you cannot now you do can't. that anymore. Right. Um, so kind of hard to source over Zoom. Just come over, over here. We'll give you coffee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, you know, for the longest time we were closed and, you know, right, exactly. and, and we're still not fully back here. I mean, and, you know, the, the kind of networking that it, that's needed to be a great reporter 
is not, it's not easily there. done over Zoom. Exactly. No. And just cold calling people most of the time doesn't work. You know, I've only been here for a year. So I was like, hey, I'm this reporter from Brussels. Right. Trust me. I'm the one with the accent. I'm the one with the accent who you don't know. And I'm writing for this new thing that you haven't might not have heard of. Exactly. Yes. I mean, obviously, people know political here. Sure. So that's definitely um, that's definitely helpful. But it's it's been harder than than it would have been in normal times. Because I also get so many newsletters. Sometimes I'm wondering, people sitting at home, how much newsletter do they consume? Do they read it every week? What, what you know, do they think, oh, today's Thursday, so Global Pulse is coming out, so I better read that. Because we're so, you know, like overwhelmed by information right now, just, just being at home, reading all your emails and everything else that comes. So I still, you know, I'm still, that's why I'm super happy to be, to be out in the world meeting people again. So I'm still hopeful that things will get better and better and I could... We could go back to some sort of interaction like it was before, before times. <laughs> well, it's a great point about information overload. Bob Schieffer and I actually wrote a book about it in 2016 called Overload, Finding the Truth in Today's Deluge of News. How do you know when people really like your work enough to open it every Thursday? What's that trigger that you think makes things actually click? I think it's, it's probably stuff that they care about either for work or for personal reasons. And that's why I also try as much as I can to bring a sort of like personal or human look to things. I was actually very surprised that after I wrote um, that little piece about my countryside in Romania, many more people than on a normal week wrote to me about it and they really liked it. And, you know, someone told me it was really nice to say it because I wasn't judgmental towards those people. There were people that I grew up with. So yeah. I was trying to understand what, you know, what was making them not take the vaccine. But um, she said it was really interesting to see from a sort of like compassionate point of view why people are hesitant, because in some cases we tend to just dismiss them and think of them in a Shame certain way. Even. Exactly. It was a refreshing way to look at, at hesitancy. So I think those kind of things, you know, like we're human beings and I always think like a human interest story interests everybody. Yeah. So I always try to bring that as much as I can. So again, it doesn't feel like this global overwhelming crisis that no one can yeah. do anything about. Carmen, let's talk about the recent summit, September 22nd. It was called by President Biden. It was on the margins of the UN General Assembly. What did you make of that? You know, you had Part of your job is to like put this in context, yes. explain what happened, follow up. What did you make of it? You had an event recently, and I agreed with <laughs> what many of the speakers and it said. It was, as you were saying too, it was weird that it wasn't public. So at times it's hard to understand or to know what was said. I spoke to a few people who attended it, but you know, one thing is to get access to it and one thing to get, you know, things told to you. It looked like definitely a good effort to show that the U.S. is back in charge. It was, it did have more concrete targets than many other mm -hmm. pledging conferences that we've seen before where, you know, amounts were thrown around, but then when you would check in months later, much of that money or donations hadn't come in. But again, the, the problem is the execution, and we are waiting now the, the G20 summit to be the sort of like next step in that. How fast do you get vaccines to people? How fast do you make sure that health facilities that are overwhelmed have oxygen to treat people with. And that's just really hard to address. The other thing that I've heard a lot from African officials is that they are still frustrated by export restrictions. And I feel like the U.S. government would tell you there's no export restriction. 
But then when you speak to to African officials trying to buy vaccines, they're like, well, why aren't the vaccines coming down to us then? And they're still very frustrated about that. And we didn't hear anything about it. So at times it does feel and it feels um, I'm not sure if it's 100 percent because it's just hard to understand how things work at time. But it feels like the U.S. is still in control of the global supply. They are announcing 1.1 billion donations. So that definitely looks yeah. looks good. Looks like the U.S. is in doing charge. more than any other country. Exactly. But at the same time, just letting the market be open and transparent is probably something that still has to Do be done. Do you think this EU-U.S. task force that's focused on both vaccines, therapies, trying to unlock supply chains. I mean, if it's successful, it's going to bring greater accountability and transparency to a marketplace for vaccines and therapies that's been profoundly untransparent and unaccountable. Are you, you, you've worked in Brussels for a number of years. What do you think of that, the creation of that task force? Is that a signal that more political muscle is going to be brought to try and shape the marketplace now because of the failure to deliver or the lack of transparency? What do you think? I think it's hard to say. I think the main thing, knowing that you how the EU works is, is speed. The EU moves really, really slow yeah. um, because obviously it's got 27 governments um, that have to agree on things. And I was looking, they, so they launched this EU-US task force on, I think, vaccine manufacturing in June, but they only kind of came together and put their mission statement out there in September. So, so it I thought, took 90 days to get the mission statement crafted. Which in normal times is not bad, but in a pandemic where, you know, people yeah. are dying every day, I feel like it should have been done much faster. So I think it's definitely a step in the right direction. But again, my problem is like, how fast is this going to happen? Definitely the EU and the US are probably the, the main producers of right. sort of like Western-made vaccines right now. So if they get together and if they do mean transparency i think they could they could change things for the better but how fast and how you know how much do they really mean it that's what i wonder yeah i mean the summit set some broad goals it got some agreement on the 70 percent target and the 40 percent target and you know the president president biden's going to have another summit first quarter and secretary blinken's going to pull together a ministerial of his peers before the end of the calendar year so they're setting expectations along those lines. But it's hard to know if this process is going to move the dial, right? I mean, yesterday I was talking to some senior folks at WHO, and I asked the question, like, from where you said, and Dr. Tedros was very positive towards the summit. He offered a tough statement. He's skeptical on boosters. We'll talk a moment about boosters. But a lot of the statements that were made by the South Africans, the Vietnamese, the Indonesians, the Indians were voicing a lot of frustration and anger and skepticism that the West was, you know, they sort of see the West as somewhat hypocritical. There were hoarders. Hoarders, slow to deliver. Now we're going to go off on the booster bandwagon and suck up a billion doses for that. And guess what? The market for that's going to be 10 times as valuable as the market for moving vaccine to low-income countries. So yes. guess what's going to happen if the market's in full force? So the response is a kind of we haven't seen – much change yet, but it's two weeks later. But there's a lot of hope pinned on the G20 thing. What do you think will come out of the G20? I don't expect much from the G20. You know, I think there was a lot of hope for the G7, and they definitely underdelivered. Then following the, you had in early September, the G20 health ministers that committed to the 40% target of, for full vaccination for people around the world that the World Health Organization set for the end of the year. 
But it was very poor in details about how we're going to do that. And as you were saying, we're 4% in many places in, in Africa and elsewhere. We're 2.4 billion doses short yes. of reaching the 40% target by the end of this calendar year. So if you want a one big metric on are we going to get to 40%, the answer is no. no. So this begs the question, and maybe this is a silly question, why are these summits happening on the margins of a you know UNGA or a G20? Isn't this isn't there time for a global summit on the global pandemic that's right out there? I mean, I think the UN tried to do that a few times. <laughs> they had one, I would say, earlier this year that it was just, you know, just leaders giving statements without any sort of targets or without any sort of you know, means to an end. No structure. There was movement. There was movement towards such a thing at UNGA. Right. And then the U.S. President Biden can't step forward. And so that they stepped back and let the U.S. Uh, pull together the summit with the hope that that would be more concrete. Now, the Chinese didn't come. Many others were not there. Boris Johnson got lost somewhere on the way there. Um, I was shocking. speaking to the French. <laughs> so, so he had other issues with language. the French. Yeah, but we yes. did have we did have some very impassioned and very important players, both countries, institutions. There wasn't much on the private sector. Mastercard was there, but the big private sector actors were absent, which was also disturbing. China was absent. Let's talk about the boosters controversy, right? Because that's just a huge mega question, right? which is, is this drive that we see among the wealthy and most powerful, and I include in that China, right? China's moving towards mass boosters as well. The wealthiest and most powerful are going to move that direction. And the big question is, is that just going to tilt the marketplace again, overwhelmingly to serve their interests and further delay access by low and lower middle income countries to to enough vaccine and affordable basis. What's your thoughts on that? That's what it feels like. You know, it feels like a vicious circle because, you know, we had the sort of like original vaccines. We use most of them. Many countries didn't get them. Then there was a variant that came here and they're like, oh, whoops, we have to use more vaccines or we might need to tweak some vaccines. So they're always it's always feels like there's a vicious circle that leaves low and middle income countries without enough supply. And I think the boosters are that, you know, the U.S. likes to say we can do both. We can provide vaccines to to countries in need and and provide boosters to our citizens. But as the chief WHO scientist said, you know, just simple math, you know, you have to take those vaccines from producers that will probably produce for you. And if you pay more money than a low low income country, you know, you will definitely be prioritized. So it does look like, indeed, we're not going to be able to have enough vaccines for everybody by June 2022. What is a bit baffling at times is that the pharmaceutical industry says we're producing 1.5 billion doses a month. We could have every adult in the world vaccinated by June 2022. But then when you ask how, they're like, well, the countries that have most of the supply should take care of that because they, you know. That doesn't seem right. I mean, it it just seems too And we, you you know, know, this whole vision of of a sharing and the market easing, et cetera, didn't take account of Delta, waning immunity, hesitancy, vaccine hesitancy, children have to be vaccinated. I mean, all the... We're not feeling here in the United States particularly secure in ourselves. Well, no. we can't get ourselves vaccinated. I mean, that's the problem is that, you know, the United States, the world's looking to the United States for leadership, but we still have 
considerable vaccine hesitancy here. We still have, you know, a, a blurred line between what's real and what's not real, you know, because of the media, because of these conspiracy theories that have been floating out there and because of the, the politicization of global health and COVID. I mean, how much time do you spend in your reporting working on, you know, issues of political polarization versus just simple issues of, of global health? I, th- I would say, fortunately, I still spend more time working on issues on global health. I think there's polarization in every country. It's not only a U.S. problem. But, you know, many people would like to see enough vaccines first in many countries. And then, you know, even getting to what we got in, in the U.S., like 50, 60 percent of the population vaccinated, that's much better than 4 or 10 percent that some countries have now. And then, you know, for s- some people see as, as fighting vaccine hesitancy as the next step. But let's first make sure that, you know, X country in Africa has enough vaccines. It is it has enough healthcare workers to be able to vaccinate all the people that want to be vaccinated. Storage. And we're just storage, you know, ultra cold chain for, for the mRNA vaccines. And we're just not there yet for so many places. And what I found interesting in my reporting was that some people are saying, like, look, you cannot have a successful vaccination campaign if you're getting one million doses today, but then you don't know when your next million is going to come for second shots. So you cannot rally people like, let's get vaccinated. But then like, oh, wait, you have to wait three, four months, maybe to get your second shot, which happened with AstraZeneca in many countries. So they were saying that actually increases hesitancy because people just don't trust the system. Carmen, the the fear that we, when you listen to what John and Kinga Zong says, head of Africa CDC, soon to be ahead of PEPFAR here and there. If you listen to Dr. Tedros, you listen to President Ramaphosa of South Africa, you listen to Antonio Guterres, Secretary General, they're all expressing a rising fear that Africa is going to be left behind and that it is going to become the, the place with the greatest uncontrolled transmission. Are you sensing that same sentiment, that shift of sentiment? Not lately. I felt that there was an optimism over the past two months because African countries started getting a lot more vaccines that they were getting. Still nowhere near enough what they need. But um, I remember someone saying that they got, I think, sevenfold more in September that they got in, in July. So it looked like vaccines were finally starting to reach countries there and they were able to, you know, ramp up vaccination. Now, the hope is that that continues. Um, Then you have COVAX um, that came and said, we're going to have to cut our forecast for vaccines of 25%. But then India said, we're going to open up exports. So it looks like at times you have a bit like good news and bad news. And it's hard Mm -hmm. to make, you know, to make up what the final result will be. But I, I did, I would say for the past month or two months, I sense optimism. Greater optimism. In Africa that they're, they're going to get more vaccines. Yes. What do you see as the most likely scenario for Africa in 2022? I think things are, I think it's time, it's hard to say because I, I feel there will be many more things at play that we cannot foresee now. Like we didn't foresee Delta, like we didn't foresee India having to shut down exports because of Delta. Um, So if, let's say, things continue the same way as now, the hope is that they will have enough vaccines to vaccinate, you know, their most vulnerable people and all the people that want to get vaccinated. What I'm afraid of is of some sort of like curveball that changes everything again, you know, a new variant, 
a new country that is a major producer having a horrible outbreak and having to stop exports and then, you know, throwing things back again. Those are legitimate things to worry about, too. I mean, that's just not you're not just pulling that out of the air. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> so on the trips, you know, the intellectual property debate, U.S. trade rep is here today speaking about China. The U.S. has lined up with South Africa and India and in the appeal to WTO for a loosening of suspension. Uh, we're expecting that the head of WTO, um, Ngozi, has said she hopes to wrap those negotiations up early December. We, we hope that's possible. Do you think there's mounting sentiment in terms uh, worldwide in terms of loosening restrictions, or how do you characterize this? You've watched the Europeans for a very long time, and you've watched this big issue for a long time. Where, where's the sentiment moving? Do you think? I don't honestly. I don't. I don't see a change in this. I think we're going to be talking about this the same way in a few months' time. It's been a year since it's been proposed. The U.S. intentions at times were not clear. They said they they support a waiver for vaccines, but not for you know, treatments and all the other things needed to fight the pandemic, while South Africa and India are still pushing for a pretty broad waiver. And I don't see the Europeans saying, okay, we're just going to open up patents and everything. Also because I feel, you know, obviously they, all major countries depend on the pharma industry delivering on vaccines. Do you think this will be used as a cudgel to try and get Moderna and Pfizer and others to do more tech transfer and more partnerships? The Europeans like to float that sometimes. I don't know how much power they have here. Um, it feels like a lot of the power, especially on Moderna, is, is in um, U.S. government's hand. But we haven't seen any movement to that. And I feel like at times when you ask the U.S. government, they would deflect by saying, yes, we support this, but look of all the other things we're doing. We're donating and we're doing all this stuff. But it doesn't. Sometimes I, I wonder if the U.S. commitment to the waiver is really there. And that's also something that the Europeans wondered about. And they they are holding firm on their position that, you know, just loosening IP is not going to solve the world's yeah. vaccine scarcity. WHO, Dr. Tedros has put himself forward for a second term, which would begin July 1, 2022. The process has begun. So he was, his candidacy supported by France and Germany. And now we have this independent investigation of the sexual abuse in DRC in the Democratic Republic of Congo in the in the eastern zone where the Ebola outbreak been concentrated. The, we've known about those abuses for some time and, and Dr. Tedros commissioned an independent investigation and that investigation just come forward. It's tell us what do you what do you see as the impact of that investigation and how much does that does that color Dr. Tedros's candidacy? So far, we don't seem to have a challenger for him. So I think because of that, I don't see... Because nobody wants the job. You know... Well, he's a strong candidate. <laughs> people I talk to are saying that there are many people who want the job, but it's just so hard to be able to have a winning bid Yeah. that you have to have all these powerful, rich countries behind you. And many feel that they just cannot get that right now. Obviously, with Germany and France and quite a few other um, European Union countries supporting Dr. Tedros... That has been confirmed for those people that maybe we're thinking about. And the Chinese are really furious at him for standing up to them on the COVID origin investigation. But what option do they have, right? Exactly. It's it's also like, do they have enough support to back another candidate that would have support from many other countries to to win? That's 
And I think, you know, the feeling, I guess, among many people who would want the job is that they just could not mount a winning bid right now. So the envelopes with the nominations coming from countries would only be open, as far as I understand, after October 29. So there might be surprises. There might be people who have been put forward. But we, we usually, I covered Tedros's first campaign uh, five years ago, and by now we knew who was in the game at that time. And now we only have his name. So, you know, the idea is that he's probably going to run and challenge, which also means that the latest revelations about the, the sexual exploitation and abuse in, in the DRC will probably not pose a major challenge for him if no one is, is challenging for the job. Carmen, we like to ask all of our guests before they leave, what, what gives you the greatest hope and optimism um, going forward into 2022, oh. if you have any? <laughs> it's hard to be optimistic at this point because, you know, <laughs> at times you feel like you have expectations that things will get better and then... They get better for a little bit and then they get worse again. But, you know, like looking back, I'm thinking in terms of pandemics, they all had an end, right? They did. So I'm We've hoping- now passed the our Spanish flu 1918 pandemic. On Friday, we crossed 700,000 deaths. I know. So, you know, this is grinding on. Hopefully there's an end soon. Exactly. So that's, that's what gives me hope is that there will be an end. And I'm just hoping that it will be sooner than later. It just, it helps my, you know, my sanity to think that this is not going to be like that for the rest of my life, Right. <laughs> that it will be, it will be over. And I'm just hoping that will be over sooner than later. Well, we're certainly with you. Carmen, thank you so much for thank being here for today. Coming in. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And congratulations. Year one is, is now behind you yes <laughs> now the harder part starts <laughs> we're excited for year two so everybody yeah. subscribe to global pulse it's the best <laughs> thank you so much